Get ready to whiten those knuckles and hold fast as we talk the most dangerous, daring, and epic sea stories ever told. Whether facing ruthless men who prey on other mariners, or storms that turn calm seas into graveyards, those who go down to the sea and cast off lines enter the most challenging and dangerous environment on Earth. Only here will you hear their stories and the lessons gained through their experience. I'm your host, Phil. And I'm Gina. And we welcome you aboard They Had to Go Out podcast. Before we dive into this episode, we need to provide a disclaimer. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and are not to be construed as official or reflecting the views of any government agency or military service. This podcast is an independent effort with no government association. When the most is expected, the brave men and women of the U.S. Coast Guard are always ready. The National Coast Guard Museum will engage, educate, and inspire visitors by honoring the courage and skill of our nation's unsung armed service. The museum will explore the Coast Guard's rich history and current impact through interactive exhibits, STEM-based learning experiences, and leadership development programming. Find out how you can join the effort. Become a plank owner today. Visit coastguardmuseum.org out. That's coastguardmuseum.org slash O-U-T. Who we have on the line today, a self-described stubborn retired vice admiral uh, who did a 40-year stint in the U.S. Coast Guard, Admiral Sandra Stotes. Um, she was the uh, started out as an incident on polar icebreakers, rose to become the first female to serve as the deputy commandant for mission support. Uh, during that career, she was also the first woman to lead a U.S. Armed Forces Service Academy. And now uh, in retirement is the author of Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters. And I am so stoked to hear her story today. Admiral, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Phil, for having me on. I'm proud to be here. Awesome. Uh, well, Admiral, we'll kick it off with uh, the question that we uh, we ask all of our uh, all of our guests. What's your most dangerous, daring, or epic sea story or stories? Well, thanks for that question, Phil. It certainly is uh, one with a lot of uh, leeway in it there, and you've got to be careful when you give a lot of leeway to a sailor because they're going <laughs> to tell you a big sea story, right? Perfect. <laughs> and it's going to get bigger and bigger as they tell it. But I am pleased to be able to tell a story, one of many about um, being cold, wet, tired, hungry, and scared, oftentimes all at once during my 12 years at sea. I did serve 12 years on six different cutters. I'm really happy, uh, looking back, to have served on cutters on the West Coast, the East Coast, and the Great Lakes. And I served on cutters that were red, white, and black. So I feel like I had a real diversity of uh, sea duty experience in my in my time as a cutterman in the Coast Guard. And there were certainly great sea stories on all of those ships. And sometimes what makes a great sea story is the adventure. And other times what makes a great sea story is something else about it, like a personal interaction. But I will go and tell one of the stories that I told in my book, my book on character-centered leadership, which is, as Phil said, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters, 
It's a book that I have been wanting to write for 30 years, my last 30 years. And the Coast Guard, since I was the time of the junior officer, I wanted to give back all that the Coast Guard had been giving me for leadership opportunities, opportunities at sea. I had six years at sea, my first uh, six years in the Coast Guard, coming out of the Coast Guard Academy in 1982. We're all at sea. and How did you dodge that staff tour, Admiral? What's that? How'd you dodge that second staff tour? Isn't that like a requirement for you guys? You got to you go to sea, and then they're like, "Oh, we're going to put you in this office for four years." Well, that's kind of why I wanted to mention that before I get into um, telling a sea story. Is that I was so privileged and blessed with the opportunities the Coast Guard gave me, and you normally do as a ensign coming out of the Coast Guard Academy, serve one sea duty tour at um, for two years, and then you normally go. Sure. Now, sometimes you're fortunate and you can go from, like, your initial tour as a, in my case, a deck wash officer on the glacier uh, and the Polar Star, actually, because I cross-decked on those ships. Um, it's a long story, but the glacier went into a major maintenance availability after my first year, so I got to cross-deck over to the Polar Star because my detailer assignment officer allowed me to. And then I could have maybe gone on to be on, on another ship because um, that longer first tour of mine, which was three full years on the different polar icebreakers, the Glacier and Polar Star, I got a second tour afloat, and I extended that tour from two years to three years. So I normally would have just had the most I could have had with four years, two separate tours, and I ended up with two separate tours with three different ships, three years on each tour. So I had six years, and so I had my permanent cutterman's pin before I even came ashore for the Admiral, first time. That that is wild. <laughs> so it, I would say this to anybody: that's uh, it's so funny because uh, you know we get to interact with uh, academy cadets every now and then, and I think uh, a lot of them they want to go to the polar rollers, the new polar rollers, and uh, that's what you always hear about. They're just so excited to do it, but. Is the tip in there for how to pull off a six-year sea tour, um, you know, fresh out of the <laughs> gate? Because if it is, that book is gold. Everybody needs to go buy that right now that's uh, that's graduating so, the academy. I was fortunate and lucky. And sometimes when you look back at a 40-year career, yeah, hard work, perseverance, competence, talent, all those words matter. But there's a lot of what happens to us that is fate, chance, luck, God's will for you, whatever you want to look at. I was lucky to get six years at sea. In fact, um, I was, Fred, my classmate, my son, my French midget, were both from the class of 1982. He ended up being the gold ancient mariner for his last couple of years in the Coast Guard. We both had um, more than five years at sea coming out of the academy. I chose to stay back at the academy and, and serve as a summer ensign teaching sailing on the waterfront before I reported to the glacier. So therefore, he reported to his first ship earlier than I. He got to be Gold Ancient Mariner. But I was chasing right behind him there to um, for that honor. And, um, yeah, that's the only way that you're going to be able to um, rise to be able to serve as, like, the Gold Ancient Mariner if you get five or six over five years of sea duty coming out of the academy. But not many people are going to have that chance. It's a lot of good luck, and people need to to work hard and persevere, but also be mindful that a lot of what happens to you is fortune and luck, and you need to be thankful for that and, and keep a humble attitude as you're going through your career, whether you're enlisted or officer, whatever it might be. And I think the Coast Guard helped me do that, helped keep me humble by giving me lots of opportunities, but also reminding me that not everything is guaranteed, and you have to fail a lot, and you have to get up and pick yourself up, back up, and keep going 
to succeed and to learn from those failures and make failure be a part of what it looks like to win <laughs> in the yeah. long run. Awesome. And that's, a, you know, <laughs> seize those advantages. And I, I love how you put in there that <clears throat> the Coast Guard let you seize that advantage because they, they you know, just uh, deliver the kind of authority and the the ability to make decisions to those low levels. So that's a that's a perfect time in the Coast Guard to make a difference those first few years in. Absolutely. And I seized the opportunities that came along, and I asked to extend my CDD. And it doesn't hurt to ask. Yeah, a lot of times when you ask and when you're a junior person, you get told no. But if you don't ask, you'll never find out. And I asked my detailer, my assignment officer, to extend um, aboard my first tour and rotate off when I was kind of chipped out of my tour uh, on the first year on Glacier as an ensign, only getting a year. We went to Antarctica, so it was awesome getting to go to Antarctica on a deep freeze. And I could tell that sea story, but I won't. <laughs> There's too many sea stories in my no, sea bag. I, that's awesome, but though. <laughs> I got short toured on my first tour, and so I asked my assignment officer, I said, hey, since the glacier's being decommissioned because it's so old, and I only got a year can I cross deck to one of the other polar icebreakers? And he let me. He sent me to a whole new tour for two more years on the Polar Star. Which so is I such asked. a bold move, too, to even ask, because a lot of people don't even like to make that call to the detailer. Hey, if he doesn't know my name, I'm, I'm doing well, right? Like, it just just give me that general duty assignment, and uh, hopefully, like, I don't make him mad, and I end up somewhere I don't want to be. Lorraine so Station at two. Yep. So one lesson I would give, so when you when you interview me, Phil, for this podcast, you're not just going to get a safe story, you're going to get leadership lessons, because that's what I do now. I um, give back leadership lessons that I've learned. I'm a trustee for the Coast Guard Academy Institute for Leadership. So people need to learn that a lot of times when they're complaining about something, it's because they self-limited and not stood up for themselves, not reached out and asked, not made it known that something doesn't work for them so you have to be interactive in the workplace you have to ask for what you want you have to work with your peers you have to tell your subordinates what you need them to do and be communicative and too many people are afraid to say anything so they sit there and they become um, disenfranchised or bitter they say they haven't had the opportunity but they haven't helped create their own fate do you know how many detailers are about to get phone calls from a first tour completed instance? No, that's awesome, Admiral. Thank you. Yeah, that was a that was solid a, advice, I, I think. <laughs> and I have another story about a detailer. Then I'll get into my C story. Okay, so I'm kind of trying to build the suspense for my C story, which is coming. I know people so are like, I, "Let's get to it." What are we doing? No, <laughs> it, but but then you know, a lot of people are like, "God, this is really good info." <laughs> so when I finish my three-year tour on as operations officer on the Coast Guard Cutter Clover. This was in 1988. So I graduated the academy in 1982. In 1988, I finished six full years of sea duty, and I asked my detailer, hey, can I go back another sea assignment? He just laughs at me, of course, because as you said, so I should have been ashore a long time ago. And so he says, nope, you're coming to ashore. Not only are you coming to shore, you're coming to Coast Guard headquarters, in Washington, D.C., and you can pick either the second floor or the fifth floor. On the fifth floor is icebreaker acquisitions, and on the second floor, whatever it was, is icebreaker operations. And um, he said, this acquisitions thing is brand new. They're building a new icebreaker. So I said, well, if I have to go to headquarters, give me that. <laughs> so I went back and I served um, on the icebreaker acquisition project, which is what Healy ended up being 
So I was serving on the Healy before it had a name. (laughs) (laughs) And I loved it. And I was the operations technical manager. So one day I went down in Coast Guard headquarters and I paid an unsolicited visit on my assignment officer. And I said, hey, I'm Sandy Stowe's, the the J.O. you sent here to headquarters against my will because I didn't want to. I mean, imagine a junior officer being sent to headquarters. It's like the death knell. And uh, that's what you think, at least. You know, you're going off to be farmed out to a great big organization where you'll be lost in the shuffle. For sure. And so I came down and knocked on the door, and I said, you know, I am so thankful that you sent me to headquarters to this job because I am valued and I'm making a difference on an important project. And I think he was shocked because nobody thanks their assignment officer ever, and even at the Coast Guard headquarters especially. <laughs> so I just thought I would give him feedback. So I went back to my office, and the next day I got a call saying, uh, Lieutenant Stowes, um, how would you like to go up and interview to be the military aide to the brand-new Secretary of Transportation, which is where the Coast Guard was stationed at the time. We weren't in Homeland Security yet until 9-11. And so I said to my detailer, I said, oh, no, well, I was just down there yesterday telling you how much I love my job. I can't leave this job. They need me here. So thank you, but I'm going to stay where I am and be true to my, you know, shipmate, so to speak, my office mate. And so that was that. Well, the next day I get a phone call saying, let me rephrase that question. (laughs) Is there any reason you can't go up and interview for the secretary's military aid job? (laughs) So I went up there to make a long story short because I was given orders to go up and interview. And I interviewed and Secretary Skinner, the service secretary, selected me as a military aide. And that really was a milestone and turning point in my life. So... That launched me, and it was something I didn't want, and I kind of failed to recognize an opportunity, but it was because I was being loyal to the job I've been assigned to, where I thought people, I knew people needed me, but that job could be backfilled, and I I learned that I need to take opportunity when it knocks. So I did that job, and I ended up um, eventually as a commander going to the Reliance as commanding officer in Kittery, Maine. And I'll start my story because you've been waiting now for the story. Yeah, and the ju- toughest. just a quick recap: the two lessons that I took from that were one, call your assignment officer, and two, butter them up whenever the opportunity presents itself. <laughs> I love it. That was good, Admiral. So it's amazing the power of a thank you. So whether it's in the office, just walking the deck plates, or whether Phil, you're the XPO at Station Jonesport whether you walk out and you find some fireman or seaman doing a mundane job and you recognize them, hey, I know you're cleaning that oil filter, but thank you. That's an important job for this unit. You don't get much recognition, but that's an important job. The power of thanking people, it comes back on you for years to come. If you make it a mission to, to recognize and thank and reward people, that's being a good leader. And I learned that when I wasn't even much of a leader, just a very junior person, by seeing the power of recognizing and thanking people, like I did with that assignment officer who was senior to me. And um, I think that's an important lesson. So, yeah, the power of buttering somebody up. But it's really the power of thanking and being grateful and seeing that come back to um, your benefit in the long run. There's your difference between O's and E's, Admiral. 
You call it yeah, you call exactly. it thinking, I call it buttering up. But either way it works. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> And you know what? That's real diversity, isn't it? <laughs> it uh, is. There you between go. Officers and listed <laughs> and how you perceive things, but it all makes us stronger. So, hey, so I was assigned as, the, of course, the first woman to command the Coast Guard Cutter Reliance in Kittery, Maine. There were three of us women on board out of a crew of about 75, two women junior officers. And I was assigned on board the Reliance in right after 9-11, so about, eh, um, six months after 9-11, something like that, I went up to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, excuse me, I went up to Kittery, Maine, and took command of the Reliance. So the nation was still um, on high alert from 9-11 that next summer when I took command. We were still in um, maritime security condition two, which was heightened security, which meant cutters had to be in Bravo 6 readiness status. That means they had to be ready to get underway in six hours instead of 24 or Charlie status which is maintenance status. So we're all on edge, and everybody was exhausted operating at their limits. And I take command of this cutter, and we're assigned to be doing six weeks at a time patrolling off um, of Ambrose Light down in um, the approaches to New York City. And it was an interesting time. We had a case where there was a cargo ship. We were boarding high-interest vessels as they came into New York City to make sure they were safe and secure and not carrying something dangerous into the port, a bomb that could explode or some other terrorist attack or going to come in and ram a pier. So we boarded the high-interest vessels. One of these high-interest vessels was the Palermo Senator. So this is um, 2002. And the vessel was found to have to be emitting radiation from its cargo hold. So the vessel was held offshore, and the Reliance was assigned a, a security zone, a safety zone around that ship and patrol it so that the ship couldn't leave and no other vessels could come within that security zone. Well, meanwhile, it was very tense because it wasn't being broadcast to the public, but there was grave suspicion and thought that there might be a dirty bomb hidden in the cargo hold of the Palermo senator. And keep in mind, everybody was on such pins and needles following 9-11. And I remember finding out after we were doing the security patrol that the President of the United States was on the phone with the um, Activities New York commander during this time because it was that high up in the chain that the president was getting it in his White House briefing every day and actually called the um, sector, the, not the sector at the time, the Activities New York commander. But we were assigned to patrol, and meanwhile we were looking at, what do we do out here? Um, if we're patrolling around <laughs> a ship that could blow up with a dirty bomb at any minute, you know, how do we protect our crew? And do we lock the ship down and keep everybody below decks? There was another cutter. A 270 was assigned to patrol with us, and they had decided to lock down their ship, and the crew was stressed and scared over there. And we decided, we got the crew, I got the crew together, my senior leaders, and said, hey, what do we do? There's no, like, rule book or drill card, <laughs> we call it in the military uh, sea services, no drill card telling us how to perform this mission. So we did all the things that you need to do to prepare for a potential 
nuclear blast, and there is a drill card on that, how you <laughs> how you react if you are in a nuclear blast scenario. You turn away from it and go as fast as you can, basically. Cross your fingers. But we, <laughs> yeah, we did everything we could to to prepare as well as we could, but there's only so much you can do when you're within a few hundred yards of a vessel that might be carrying a bomb that blows up. So we decided we're going to not lock down, not create fear and um, and all that amongst our crew. We're going to, instead of creating fear, we're going to go ops normal, continue operating. We're going to focus on the mission, not focus on fear of what could happen. And everybody was professional. We executed the mission um, it was arduous conditions. It was rough weather. We were were apprehensive about what might happen, but everybody was focused, and our families weren't worried. The other ship was very, very stressed, both uh, on board the ship and families ashore worrying about what was going on. And in the end, after uh, you know a week of this, uh, it was found that the ship was carrying harmless Portuguese clay tiles that emitted a low level of radiation. But um, it was a non-event in the end. But I think what it did was test us all and show us that being sound and not reacting overly to fear, because it's easy to let fear change the way you manage a mission and the way you lead, and to step back and bring in the team and talk, use diverse perspectives of different people in the crew with different experiences and come up with a solution that everybody agreed on we found a way to conduct that mission in a way that had the less adverse impact on the crew. And it built trust amongst us um, and respect in in the leadership and how we did things. So I think that was really important. It's a different kind of a lesson at sea because it's not the typical sea story where you're in a howling gale and, and all that. But it was an unusual circumstance following 9-11 that gives maybe a little bit of a historical perspective on some of the thousands of things the Coast Guard was doing from standing up brand new maritime safety and security teams to having legacy old 50-year-old cutters like the Reliance out there patrolling doing um, missions that were brand new to us. So I offer that, Phil, as one opportunity for a story that maybe is a little different than most, but with your permission, I can move on to a traditional type of sea story that happened on the Reliance. You never need my permission, Admiral, but I do want to ask you a couple <laughs> questions if uh, if I could. So, sure. you know, like, uh, I mean, that's, that is a high drama situation, right? I, cause you know, it is post nine 11, the United States has been attacked. Um, you dirty bombs and, suitcase nukes and all, all kinds of things are kind of hitting the news as potential threats. I'm curious, um, you know, you've got your crew, right, which is the platform to get the boarding team out to this boat. Did you talk to the boarding team directly before they went? Was it a joint team? Was it like, was it just the cutter crew? How how did that work? Who was prosecuting that, that boarding? So the interesting thing about the Palermo Senator was, and the whole 9-11 post-9-11 um, operations in New York City and offshore, I call it Amber's Light because that was the sea buoy that marks the entrance to New York City, was that there were so many units and so many people, Coast Guard and CBP, Customs and Border Protection, and others 
that we're all, I mean, New York City has huge forces um, that people just don't know about that are, that are able to respond to uh, incidents like this. So we had a lot of other people. So we, my crew, did not board the Palermo Center. We were providing the security. We boarded other high-interest vessels, not the Palermo Senator. But we had on board, at different times, we had on board people from the brand-new maritime safety and security teams, the MSSDs that were being stood up. There was one being stood up in New York City. Some of them would come out and spend a few days or a week with us, and they had more specialized training in how to use these um, um, rate, um detection devices for um, nuclear emissions. Right. So, yeah, so they would come out and stay on board of us, and they would help board. So although we didn't board the Palermo Senator, other teams did that. We did board many high-interest vessels, and I did not address the crews before they went out the boarding teams. As the captain of the ship, I did not because we knew the mission. I certainly briefed the crew on the mission before we deployed on a six-week patrol, but then I was big on empowering my people. So my exo, my OSPAS, my engineer, my senior boarding officer, all the people who worked for me, I wanted them to own their parts of the mission. So my ops boss, oh, my gosh, was he busy, operations officer, for those who weren't aware of the abbreviations. Uh, this was uh, had a couple different ops bosses, but the one I remember best was now Captain Jeff Yarish. He was busy during this time, and he was the one interacting with the boarding teams, giving them instructions. He had the latest intel, what was going on to be concerned with, looking at the crew rest situation. My biggest job as the captain was balancing what I call this three-legged stool of operations, training, and crew rest. <laughs> right. And they're all equally important. And a lot of, I think, leaders get focused on the operations to the extent that they give up on focus on the crew rest and the training. And that's where accidents and mishaps happen. So we carefully balance that. And Jeff uh, Yarosh and my exos, I had a couple of different exos over this period, were very good at looking at balancing this three. Because I made that my principle as the captain. I need you guys, the department heads, division officers, to balance operations training and crew west. And of course, maintenance is happening, you know, when you're on watch and all that. But there's such, there's so much to balance. So that would be my focus. And then every department head and division officer knew their job and they had their duties to do. And we had um, close interaction between the boarding teams, the ops boss, and all the other elements of the Coast Guard that were engaged in this. It was truly a multilateral effort, um, which was part of the reason why we all succeeded so well post 9-11. I like how you said other agencies in there too. And what you mean by that are black helicopters where like, we don't even know where you came from. You just showed up one day and you seemed like, you know what you were doing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, um, Admiral, I will ask you, so before you guys deploy, you said you addressed everyone about the mission, right? And we, and you do know, like uh, we're, I would say everybody there's highly aware, right? Of, where you're deploying to or where you're going to sail and cruise off the coast of New York uh, post 9-11. What did you, you know, what what um, what um was the mission? What did you tell them? Was there anything to say like, you know, we got to lock it on this time because it very easily could come from the sea? Yes. 
we were, yes, everybody on the crew was well aware of that. You know, when it's new people to Portobor, which, of course, you have a constant turnover, that the, those people, brand-new recruits coming in from Cape May, whoever, somebody coming in from another unit, they get briefed up, not by me necessarily, but briefed up when they come aboard. Here's the mission on this ship. You know, we're going to be, the first year I was in command, which was 2002, we're going to be down, and <laughs> every trip was going to be south to Ambrose White off New York City. So everybody knew the mission. It's really important that everybody understand the mission and what the priorities are. And that is exactly why I made it a, a personal, you know, communications effort to balance that mission, which was the operations the, the training that we needed to do to make sure we were ready for that mission and the crew rest. Right. And, I mean, there were times, we're talking training, as you well know, Phil, when you lower the small boat off of a medium endurance cutter into a, in the, in the winter, in February. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> when, it's 20, when it's blowing 20 knots and you're looking at, you're doing your risk analysis, and certainly that's one, another reason, another um, area, rather, where I was leading the focus was the risk assessment that you did before you did every operation. So we were trying to balance. you get got a high-interest vessel coming in. We'd like to board it at sea before it gets into port. We don't really want to make it hold off out there because then you back up commerce and shipping and you create all kinds of problems with um, supply to the United States. I mean, I always remember, you know, there was a pineapple carrier that was held up too long and every pineapple rotted you know in the cargo and nobody wins so you want to try to as the captain of a ship enforcing the laws i was looking at the risk analysis and can i get my boat down is it safe given the balance of the need for this mission to lower my boat in 20 knot winds with you know fleet coming down and um, slippery conditions, is it worth it to go and board this high-interest vessel steaming in? So we'd have to make those risk-based decisions all the time. The crew had to understand the mission and how important it was, or they would wonder, what is she doing sending us out? There was nobody who didn't understand the mission. And post-9-11, for those who were younger who don't remember, people were just of a different mindset in those days. The urgency of the, the situation was was well-known, and my biggest challenge was balancing how to do the mission safely while making sure the crew was trained to do the mission and was rested well enough to do the mission. It's crazy it's been 20 years, isn't it? It's amazing. I'll be coming up on a somber anniversary on September 11th in just um, two and a half weeks, which is why I wanted to, with this particular podcast segment, I hadn't intended to tell that story because I had another story in mind, which I'm going to move to after you're done um, with some questions on this story. But I thought it was pertinent, given that we are facing the 20th anniversary. And a lot of people weren't born, who are in the Coast Guard now, weren't born when 9-11 happened, which is amazing to me. So even if it's just a small story here, I think, from me, I think there's, there's a hundred of these small stories out there, thousands of them, that are worth cobbling together and maybe the new Coast Guard Museum will have a 9-11 section, I'm sure it will, where more of these stories are told. For sure. And, uh, you know, for anybody listening, uh, I know we got a lot of people that always reach out about, about you know, should I join the Coast Guard? What should I do? I mean, right right there's a lesson that shows uh, your first command tour, right, Admiral? That's what you said? That was your first command tour? Oh, no, my first command tour was a small icebreaker around the Great Lakes called... As a lieutenant, right? Yep. As a lieutenant. And you were an 06 yep. on this one? 
Yeah, 05. 05. Okay. Well, all the non-rates that she talked about, all those junior people that are leaving, um, you know, all those guys were involved in that right after uh, right after 9/11. A few short days later, you know, the Reliance is deploying down there and suddenly uh, conducting boardings of high-interest vessels. And even that uh, that term for anybody that was in 9/11 and still today, um, you know, high-interest vessels are the are the ones that we're looking for. Those are the ones that are um, violating the law, posing a threat, that kind of thing. So immediately placed into action, you know, and even if your job is to, uh, maintain the hull, um, it's a critical job. That's what keeps the boat floating. So absolutely, absolutely. And you can't, it's not a time for mistakes and that's why you have to train your crew and rest them, even though you're operating in these intense circumstances. It's very challenging and we were exhausted a lot of the times and you had to manage exhaustion and that was another um, that was the reason that I came up with that three-legged stool. I started to very quickly realize that we were all exhausted, and I came up with this idea of the three-legged stool of operations, training, and crew west. And once I had that and I conveyed that to my crew, everything settled down because we understood, yeah, the mission's the priority, but we are allowed to and have to take time to rest and to train. So that gave the crew the direction they needed to make sure we were ready for the mission. And that's so important because when I look back on my 40 years with the Coast Guard, I look back on a lot of the mishaps that have happened because that three-legged stool got out of balance. Awesome advice, Admiral. I'll let you move on. What's what's our next one? Where are you taking this? Okay, so after 2002, I was on the Reliance as commanding officer from 2002 to 4. So when it came time for 2003 to roll around, Things were settling down after 9-11, and we found ourselves on the Reliance out of Kittery, Maine. And by the way, that's a 210-foot medium endurance cutter. We were now doing patrols in the Gulf of Maine and Georgia's banks, so more, more fisheries patrols and search and rescue in, in those um, rough waters. And it's always rough up there. <laughs> it's never – sometimes in the summertime you get a calm day. But we had um, one patrol. The patrols were always six weeks long. And we were out there doing a patrol around the Thanksgiving time frame. And I had convinced the schedulers, or my operations officer had convinced the schedulers to let us come in for Thanksgiving and early into a uh, six-week patrol. So we pulled into Newport and Newport, Rhode Island. And it was great. We sent the crew, you know, home. A lot of them were from Kittery, Maine or New England, uh, families came down. I even went home. My um, my mom came to get me because she lived in Falmouth, Massachusetts, and I was home in Falmouth um, a day after we pulled in on Thanksgiving Day. And no sooner was the fork with turkey going to my mouth, <laughs> we when the phone rang, and it was my crew on the Reliance saying, "Ma'am, we've been recalled uh. for a search for a search and rescue case." And so we're, here we are in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner, and it was interesting because I had been, I had the TV on or somebody in the house had the TV on, and I saw this, um, it was on the, the news, the national news, that there was this sailboat adrift like hundreds of miles off the coast of New England, you know, um, in the Gulf Stream, heading towards England. <laughs> and <laughs> the wrong way, like probably. <laughs> 30-foot sailboat, Oof. sails are blown out, disabled and adrift, hundreds of miles offshore in the November time frame. <laughs> so we all know how bad the gills in November are. 
And so I had seen the the news, and it was it was unfortunately it was talking about how the Coast Guard had spent like hundreds of thousands of dollars already in a few days trying to send a, a fixed wing aircraft out to this guy, drop supplies to keep uh, him surveilled, keep a radio guard with him so he was safe. And I'm like, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> this guy's out there. And I'm, I'm like, thank God it's not us out there <laughs> trying to go, go save him. Little did you know. Well, sure enough, <laughs> sure enough I, I, uh, of course, my family puts their forks all down, drives me back to the ship. <laughs> and sure enough, it's this sailboat that we've been told to go save. So we get underway, and there's never a calm day in November. So we get underway, and there's always a storm coming up from the south, up through the um, Cape Hatteras, and by the time it hits New England, it's a full-fledged nor'easter or something. So we're heading out, and of course, it's into the teeth of one of these things. Nor'easter's coming up the coast, or storms of some kind, and it's rough weather, and the swells, and we have the swells quartering, and they're probably, I don't know, 10 feet, but they're not waves. They're like these swells that come in advance of a storm, like 10 feet. On the quarter, so we're rolling, and that uncomfortable kind of roll that sailors will know, where your stomach goes one way and your body goes the rest of the way, and the ship's going another way <laughs> with those uh, with those high seas on the quarter, and um, it's really rough. And we're rolling. I don't know how it's a whatever. It's enough roll to be really uncomfortable, and it's always those like snap rolls where you get a little bit of a moment going, and then you go. Boom, boom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. You get a couple rolls in a row that are, like, extra bad. And so all of a sudden, I'm on the bridge, and we get a call from the engine room. Bam! There's a major blue oil leak on engine number blank. Engine, mainly engine number two, whatever it was. We recommend we set GE. So we found the general emergency alarm. And, and uh, of course, now the ship comes dead in the water, and now we're really <laughs> being pushed around by the seas. Well, as it all turns, this is in the middle of the day, so that's good. We just got another way, so it's several hours into this this mission, just starting this mission, and um, on so Thanksgiving Day. On Thanksgiving Day, yeah. it might be the day, it might be the day after by then that we got underway because we had to get everybody back. So it's probably the day after Thanksgiving. Close enough. So <laughs> just so make anyway, it. Just, we'll just call it Thanksgiving Day. That's what we're going to call it. <laughs> so to to make a long story short, and to get to the story and the lesson. Um, a toolbox in the engine room of the Reliance. And these toolboxes are big and heavy. So who knows how big it was? I can't remember. It's like three or four foot long and two or three feet wide. A huge old metal toolbox. They're bolted down. But this thing came flying off its bolts. And it flew. It launched itself across the engine room on a roll. And on its trajectory, it decided to slam into one of the main diesel engines and take out the petcock valve that allowed all the oil to start pouring out of that main diesel engine, which, of course, can create a engine room fire. Well, it didn't. Why didn't it? A fireman threw himself, followed that box across the engine room. He launched his body across the engine room in his hand, and he grabbed that valve and shut it. Wow. So we had a fireman, and for the listeners who aren't aware, that's a junior person, the low, low-level low person on the ship, probably in you know, new guy. I can't remember his name now. I wish I could. He stopped that fire from happening. And the lessons here are the most junior person on the ship was able to avert a casualty 
by boldly, with courage, jumping out and shutting down that engine. And second, that box shouldn't have launched itself across the engine room. So even though we had secured for C, there were bolts that were rusted out that sheared off. And we could have prevented that mishap because people would say, oh, it's an accident. You couldn't have done anything about it. There's never an accident at sea. There's always somebody responsible. That's not that you're going to blame them. I I was not in the least bit looking to blame anybody for the toolbox flying across the end room. But what we did all learn a lesson, I didn't even say a thing. There was no way the engineers were going to get underway on a patrol again without checking the bolts to make sure they weren't rusted out or put stainless ones in <laughs> to make sure that the uh, toolbox was secured, you know. So you learn that bit, big lesson. Always secure for C and never presume that something is going to be fine. you got to do your maintenance and you got to inspect everything because prevention is, a pound of prevention is worth, an inch of prevention is worth a uh, foot of cure, whatever the saying is there. And the second thing is that junior people can be the most valuable people and they're often not looked at that way. So there's a, a couple of lessons there. And I'll stop and see if you have any questions because that's just the beginning of our rescue and I'll finish up uh, afterwards. No, I'd say 100%, Admiral. I mean, that's, you know, what a testament to how they're training the new guys, right, uh, to care and to uh, to recognize the role they play to, to jump out there and do that. Yeah, what a great story. Like, uh, yeah, great so example to, to follow. <laughs> yeah, but goes back to that um, three-legged stool of the mission, the training, and the crew rest. So we... Um, we continued on. That was um, a great wake-up call for us to start out with. We all breathed a heavy sigh and continued on. And so eventually we get a couple hundred miles offshore <laughs> to where the sailboat is disabled and adrift. And we come upon this guy at nighttime, and he doesn't have anything except a radio. So we set up our communications watch with him. And we have to somehow <laughs> save this sailboat and it's not as easy as it sounds and once again we're in the spotlight so we're and i just make a joke we are we're halfway between portsmouth new hampshire which is where kittery maine is and portsmouth england at this point in the gulf stream drifting with this guy because we come alongside him and the seas are too rough for us to do anything we can't launch a boat to get him in tow we can't launch a boat to get him onto our ship we're keeping him safe while we're riding out the seas that are hoping the seas will go down. Right. And we're drifting towards England at two or three knots with a Gulf Stream, maybe four. And so once again, we're on the Atlantic Area's radar screen every morning. The Reliance's search and rescue case is being briefed to Atlantic Area Commander, who was Admiral Hall at the time, <laughs> Vice Admiral Jim Hall. And he jokes with me about that all the time now when I see him. But um, eventually, there came... And so I'm thinking as the captain, what do I do? We were... So the guy had gotten out of range of helicopters. So you couldn't even lift the guy off to safety with the helicopter. He'd gone past Nova Scotia, where you could have had your last chance in Halifax to send a helicopter out. So um, we finally had what looked like a tiny window between the, the, the rough weather we were in and a major storm that was getting ready to hit us. So this is just rough weather we were in. And so... It was a last chance effort to save this guy. So we did a, a risk analysis, and and I said, look, you know, we're going to have to do some creative stuff here. And we decided to launch our small boat, give it the best lead we could, send a crew over, 
get that guy off of his ship. And he didn't want to leave a sailboat. He was like, I'm not leaving my boat. And so I was of the mind, get the guy off the ship in the rough weather. Get him back to my ship and on my ship, and I'm happy. But he's not going to leave without his boat. So, I mean, we could have taken him off, I guess, by some kind of force or lied to him and told him, don't worry, we'll get you and we'll get your boat. But we decided that we'll try to get the boat in tow. And we had enough of a window. We got him off of his vessel, got this, got our Richard Holland little boat alongside his 30-foot sailboat, and they're both going up and down 10 feet. We make the transfer. We get him back into our small boat. We get him onto our ship, and I breathe a heavy sigh of relief. Meanwhile, I've still got a bosun mate. Thank God for bosun mates. He's there making up a toe. So I've got the bravest crew in the world. I mean, New England crews, you can't beat them. I know you're in Jonesport. Oh, my God. These are guys who wear shorts in the wintertime when it's zero degrees. You cannot beat New England crews. They are so hardy and so brave and so capable. So I have a bosun mate over there making up a toe. And then... Even in this short window of an hour or two, it's naturally rough to get the small boat back alongside that sailboat. So I, I t- We've got a lot more of this episode to go, and we'll get right back to it after this short ad from our sponsor. We're going to give you a key number about the future National Coast Guard Museum, and that number is five. First of all, there are five theme storylines, lifesavers around the globe, enforcers on the seas, defenders of our nation, champions of commerce, and protectors of the environment. And these exhibits and galleries in those storylines will be showcased in a five-story museum. And here's our favorite five. For as little as $5 a month, you can become a plank owner and support the construction of the National Coast Guard Museum. For details on how you can get involved, go to coastguardmuseum.org slash out. That's coastguardmuseum.org slash O-U-T. Want to check out is the Always Ready Collective, delivering art by and for daring fighters of the sea with their maritime-focused tattoo flash, pinups, and propaganda. Visit them on Facebook, Etsy, Instagram, and at alwaysreadycollective.com. They say, ma'am, what do we do? I said, tell them to jump. Oh, into the ocean. Yeah, oh. And, we'll, and we'll have a small boat pick him up because we, how else are we going to get him off? Right. And so he's wearing his flotation devices and all that. So he jumps off the sailboat into the ocean. The small boat picks him up pretty easily. And we bring him back to the ship. And thank God we get the boat up. Our small boat lifted back up in its cradle. And we have this tow on. And so it's Do you like guys a have heavy a, Is there a two-inch line on a 210? Don't ask me how big it is. It's big. Yeah, no, I was, I, I'm just curious. Like, yeah, it must have been remember. a heck of a rig to get a 30-foot sailboat in tow that far. Yeah, I, oh. I'm just trying to imagine it. It was a huge tow line. It was the size of my forearm. <laughs> that's how, crazy. How big that is. Yeah, I wanna, I yeah the, that's pretty good. I don't know the nautical terms of how many inches, but it was a heck of a line. And um, so, we, so we turn around and we go back towards the United States. And now we're getting ready to get hit by one of these Gulf Stream nor'easters, an Atlantic winter storm. And they're really bad on the Gulf Stream because you've got this hot water and this really cold air, and it just creates a fury, <laughs> a cyclonic activity. And so we're going back now into this storm, and it's horrible. And I, Meanwhile, I've got a tow back there, and I'm like, 
Oh, well, my only goal is to make it back to America, hundreds of miles <laughs> offshore. I'm only 210 feet long. I know that my beam, my permite damage control book, my beam wind force is only 50 knots, and I've got this major Atlantic storm. And um, I'm only 210 feet long, which is not very long when you're in a huge storm like that. And uh, so we're up and down these 30-foot waves with a it's nighttime. You couldn't even see a tow back there. And I remember standing on the bridge. Of course, I didn't leave the bridge all night. Violating my own thing about crew rest, because what do you do? You can't really leave the bridge. You couldn't put a lookout up there. You had to have a lookout inside. Um, and uh, my, I remember the bridge watch looking at me. And I remember an ensign looking up at me. He was breaking in OED. Ma'am, we're going to be okay, aren't we? <laughs> and I'm like... Oh, yeah, this happens all the time. We're designed for it, and we're going to be fine. This is just rough at being at sea. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, I'm looking over my shoulder. Like, you know that old saying that when the captain looks over her shoulder, in my case, it was a her, when you look over your shoulder, there's nobody there to ask. Right. <laughs> well, when I looked over my shoulder that night, there was nobody there to ask but God. And, um, yeah, I prayed. But I gave a, um, a reassuring um, presence to my crew. I'm like, yeah, this is normal. We see seas like this all the time. You know, this is we're designed for this and everything. And um, I was scared. I was cold, wet, tired, hungry, and scared that night, even as a, a, a commander in charge of that boat. But you know what? We somehow made it through that night, and that was the worst of the storm. And I couldn't believe it. Looking back in the morning, that freaking tow was still there. So that bosun mate had rigged that dang thing up, and then the guys... The deck force had let the catenary out just enough to where it was in step with the ship all night, even through 30-foot seas. That stinking little 30-foot sail that was still there in the morning. I, I was fully expecting that thing would be gone. Probably hoping <laughs> it was gone, right? Like, man, I really hope this thing's gone so we can speed it up. <laughs> so I'll tell you how bad this mission was. By the time we got into um, Cape Cod Bay a couple of days later, Admiral Cray, who was a district commander, because this had been followed by the whole Atlantic area, Admiral Cray says, oh, Sandy, Come on into port as soon as you can, early from your patrol, you know, as soon as you get relieved of that tow, come on in and we'll put you at the pier and give you a rest. Because we had to have, there was nobody who was going to come out and take that tow. Finally, they found a boat, a commercial vessel would come into Cape Cod Bay and relieve us of that tow. And, um, and my, I asked my crew, I said, do you guys want to go in to Boston tonight? And they're like, no, <laughs> we are too exhausted. We want to sleep overnight, sleep the next day, and then we'll go into Boston in a day. So imagine a crew giving up a day of liberty in Boston. Right. They were exhausted. A chance to see their families. We were so wiped out. So we just died. You know, we just slept and uh, I finally went into Boston. But when we let that guy go and transferred him to the... Um, the, t the commercial vessel was telling him in. He thanked me profusely and said, if you ever want to sail, just give me a call. Here's my number. And I just smiled. But inside, <laughs> I'm just, like, getting ready to just burst out in laughter. Here's a guy who gets himself in a pickle of being halfway between America and England. And, and now he's inviting me to go on a sail with him. And, and not just inviting boat. anybody, but a Coast Guard Academy <laughs> sailing instructor. Like, get out of here. What are you doing? Yeah. I'm like, of how much danger he'd been in. He was very grateful, but I think he was kind of like a little bit, you know, just naive about how 
he was trying to have sailed his boat to Bermuda, and he, he missed the window. He was going from Newport, uh, Rhode Island, to Bermuda for the winter and got offshore. But anyway, that's the story. In, I, in his defense, uh, he was out there in a storm for a very long time, so things do get shaky <laughs> mentally, you know, by the time you get back. I, I'll give that to him. I think so, but um, what a crew. I mean, that was a testimony to this amazing crew that we had. And these guys, once again, it was a different mission. It wasn't the the 9-11 Palermo Senator dirty bomb mission. It was a regular, traditional, good old-fashioned search and rescue that the Coast Guard's been doing since 1790. And the the, the men and women, and mostly men, of the cons of the Reliance, uh, I just was so privileged to be part of that crew. And at the end of the day, when my time came for me to go back for my next sea assignment, because I still had one more to go, I could have gone to command at 378 at the time, I turned it down and I wrote a letter to my detailer saying I do not want to screen for command of a 378. I want to screen for command of Cape May, the training center, because these enlisted people that we are graduating from boot camp in Cape May, they are the salt of the earth and the salt of the sea, whatever. They are people I want to be responsible for training and developing. And I was able to go to Cape May as the commanding officer, but it was because of the enlisted people that for 12 years um, served me and served our nation um, and did the mission. And all these trying, trying conditions, and these are two stories, I've probably got 20 just like this, and uh, my respect for the enlisted force is so high. And commanding Cape May was the single biggest honor in my entire career. So I'll end the story with that. It's all about the men and women at the enlisted corps. They are the backbone of the Coast Guard. And I'm so privileged to have been able to lead them for my time in the Coast Guard. You know what keeps coming to my mind, Admiral, is the um, who asked you um, about the weather, right? Are we going to make it? That's kind of like bringing bananas on a ship. Like, you're just not supposed to do it. It's one of those things you get, <laughs> Like, you just keep that to yourself, you know? Because we're all going to make it. But yeah, you, you, now uh, now I feel like you jinx it, you know, as soon as you tell somebody, yeah, yeah, no problem, we got this. I just jinxed myself. That's when you end up with uh, the engineering casualties. But that's a, that's a heck of a question to get, especially standing on the bridge. Yeah, you gotta you got to project that confidence and competence that um, makes the crew... Um, uh, put them at ease and gives them the confidence that they can do this. So the leader has to project an image. So here's something I will say about this whole movement nowadays, to be yourself and be authentic and to bring your authentic self to work. No, I'm sorry. I wrote a blog. I've got a Leading with Character blog, by the way. So anybody who wants to hear more about my leadership lessons can go to www.sandrastows.com, all one word, my name, and look at my blog on my website. And it's I awesome, by the on, way. I've, um, I've checked out a few posts, so highly yay. recommend. We'll link it. We'll link it on this thing. Thanks. And I have a blog on being genuine, which is different than being your authentic self. So nobody wants to see my authentic self if I come to work in the morning and haven't had my coffee yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, no, and nobody wants to see my authentic self if I'm commanding officer because they're cut a reliance and I'm actually kind of scared. <laughs> I've got to project an image of who I need to be in that moment, not my authentic self. And there is an interesting quote that I heard by uh, an NPR interview with Bruce Springsteen, who many of us would recognize that name of the musical performer. Many may not, though. Said, 
I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like 9/11. We're we're getting you know the the dates are getting uh, getting long past now. We got to keep. We got to remind him of it though, right? Yeah, he's a very famous rock and roll star, and he uh, performs like you wouldn't believe on stage. And yep. he says to the interviewer and NPR, "Hey, when I look at myself performing on stage like that, you know, in a video or something, he says I wish that was me. I'm not that person." Uh, so he's a shy, quiet, introvert person like I am. And so when I heard that interview, it resonated with me because sometimes I feel like an actor on a stage. I'm not my authentic self because my authentic self might be a little bit rumpled that day because I hadn't had my coffee. My authentic self might be a little scared and apprehensive, but I better not. I have a duty to not give that um, impression to my crew. I have a duty to present myself in a professional manner as the leader that I need to be in the moment that I'm in. I don't have the privilege of being my authentic self every day. I want that to be a lesson for your listeners. Don't buy that whole line of stuff that we should all bring our authentic selves to work. I think you need to be genuine, but not just haphazardly authentic. So that's my message is, be the leader, the genuinely concerned, personable, professional leader you need to be in the moment every day. Uh, I'll translate for enlisted. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> you know, when a lot of what we do is, yeah, and I love it. I love it as that enlisted perspective, whether it's uh, buttering somebody off or fake it till <laughs> you make it. It's all about doing what you need to do to succeed with by leading with character so there you go that's what that's the part you don't fake right the part you don't fake is the character the character yeah so this these little um, slogans that we have fake it till you make it or whatever yeah you got to be the leader you need to be in the uh, position you're in and um you might have to put on a little bit of a of of an act like you're on stage and then you go home and you just collapse into your easy chair oh my god God, I got through that mission, or I got through that rescue, or I got through that that uh, challenge that I had to face, <laughs> and I had to be the leader I needed to be, and it took a lot out of me to do that. But now you're, you're one to. step closer to being that person, too, now, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, so people say to me, oh, man, you're not an introvert, look at you, you're an extrovert, I'm like, I became, over 40 years, through that trial and error, Chief, that you just mentioned, the experiences and through the failures that I had and learning from all that, I became the leader that I wanted to be to achieve the goals, the leader I needed to be to achieve the goals I wanted to achieve in my life. Excellent. Well, Admiral, I want to take it all the way back uh, to that first command assignment that you had. Um, What... You know, what did it feel like to take command of a, of a Coast Guard cutter? Oh, my gosh. So the first command I ever had was the Coast Guard cutter, Cat My Bay, in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. It's a 140-foot ice-breaking tugboat. <laughs> and, you know, you have to read my book if you want to get the whole story. So I apologize in advance that um, these stories are... Or shortened, they don't really have the whole context. But when I went up to command the Katmai Bay, I was again the first woman to command that class cutter, that boat, or any military boat on the Great Lakes. And I didn't want to be the first. 
So you hear a lot about being the first in my story, but I didn't choose that. But I came into the Coast Guard in a third class of women to go to the academy in the early years, and I couldn't outrun being the first. So it wasn't anything I chose, but I learned to roll with it, and I learned to try to turn being the first, turn the spotlight away from me and onto the crew. I tried to make the best of it, but I was the first, and it was hard because I got up there, and I'd already been told by people, oh, you're going to have a hard time up there. It's a really small town. It's so cold and so remote. In fact, they call it Sioux St. Siberia. It's way up on the border with Canada. <laughs> what a good name. <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. I like it. Yeah, it's on Lake Superior on the border of Canada. And those, those old merchant mariners who who um, are in command of those 1,000-foot um, iron ore carriers, they're never going to trust a, a young woman to break ice and lead them through dangerous waters. You're going to have a hard time. So I already knew I was going to have a hard time. And then I was coming up to that command from being the Secretary of Transportation's military aide. I told you about that earlier in the story. and um, And he wanted to come to attend my change of command, and he did come. He flew himself in in one of the uh, Federal Aviation Administration um, jets because he was a pilot. The Secretary Skinner flies in to the, my change of command in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Now, keep in mind, the service secretary, which uh, is a cabinet-level position, would normally maybe attend the Commandant of the Coast Guard change of command. They would never in a million years attend a lieutenant's change of command for a, a little ship in Sioux St. Mary, Michigan, but the secretary did. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's a long story, but he really believed in me, and he's been my main mentor my entire career. <laughs> in fact, he came to my retirement three years ago. So after this, so it's huge media attention, and um, of course there isn't much news in Sioux St. Mary anyway, so it doesn't take much to, to gain all the media attention, but after everything's over and done with and everybody's gone, departed from the change of command, my boss, which is a captain, and he was an old captain who come up through the ranks, which they call a Mustang. He'd been enlisted, made it all the way up to captain. He looks at me and says, you're just the secretary's fair-haired golden girl. We'll see how long you last. Wow, oh, wait a... God. Yeah, what, a, what an <laughs> intro, huh? Now, keep in mind, this is 1990. I, I get it, I, um, yeah. I have no doubt that this wouldn't happen in today's Coast Guard. <laughs> but it is my experience um, all those years ago when I took my first command. And, oh, it was hard because he did try to make my life miserable. And I had 17 men that I was leading in this new position with lots of demands in a dangerous job. And finally, one day, it seemed like he backed off me. And I'm like, oh, okay, things got easier. I could actually do my job, focus on my job, and get the mission done. Well, either months or years later, I found out that my chief bosun mate, who was my deck department head, and it was Chief Dave Foley, <laughs> that he had gone up to the captain's office, closed the door, and said, hey, captain, you need to back off our our, our commanding officer. She's doing a good job, and it's creating um, bad morale on the crew because they don't know what to think because she's doing a good job. You're countering her and making it and causing confusion. He says, you need to back off. And I thought, he told me this a long time later, and I can't believe I had an enlisted guy, a chief, stand up for me, a lieutenant, who he didn't even know that well, but he saw something that wasn't right, and he stood up to be my ally in front of the captain who could have just railroaded his career right then and there 
And um, I learned from that that how you can have mentors at all levels. You don't need to look up to find someone senior to you to be your mentor. You can have allies and mentors below you, and you have to be uh, aware that you can find those allies in your crew. And don't be an island. Don't be isolated and alone. And I hadn't learned that lesson yet. So here I am, the brand-new captain. I'm trying my best, and I don't realize that I can lean on my crew to be my ally. I'm trying to build respect and earn trust from them every day. But um, I learned that lesson. So I will say that that was my experience as my on my first command. It was really hard in many ways that you might not think because of being a woman. And, and it was really unique, though. I wouldn't train it for anything, even that bad boss, because I had that experience to have that mentorship from Dave, and he's one of my best friends to this day. No, what a what a story, Admiral. I think you know chiefs are unique. I, I would say among the uh, military services, but uh, unique to the sea services anyway. So it's a uh, they definitely serve a, a unique role. Um, but it's one Absolutely. that I I always see. Uh, I think the private sector is always trying to build out some kind of similar capability. It's just a little tougher, but um, definitely yeah. uh, definitely pay dividends. No, that's uh, that's yeah. great, and that's uh, there's the expectation. Maybe that's what's changed. You said uh, you wouldn't expect in the modern Coast Guard, and that's uh, I think the expectation now is you see something wrong, you you say something, and we get it fixed. Yeah, you stand up for people, and I I tell you what, I love speaking in front of chiefs groups. In fact, I just spoke in front of the annual CPOA convention in Grand Haven a, a few weeks ago, and I have such powerful stories about how chiefs have supported me and. I wouldn't be where I am today without Chief Petty Officers. Awesome, Admiral. Uh, I'll make sure that you, uh, they know that you buttered them up. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, loaded, what about your first search and rescue case, Admiral? Do you remember the first, like the first time that you, wherever it was, that you were ever called out to, to go make a difference, save a life, save some property? I'm trying to think the very first one because I was on polar icebreakers for my first three years and I'm not sure that we did any search and rescue on this notable. I think that on the glacier we got diverted on our way to Antarctica to do a search pattern for somebody who was lost. Well, that's that in itself is a pretty epic case that you're on an icebreaker headed yeah. to Antarctica and get diverted somewhere in the South Pacific. I'm guessing to go uh, to go do a search pattern. It was off of Mexico, and oh, okay. actually, it is a good point because when we were struggling to um, advance the case for national polar security cutters years ago, and I've been involved in that program for many years when I was on active duty. Um, we were trying to say, hey, these polar security cutters are multi-mission. And another case that was on the glacier, we had that. We never found anybody, but we were diverted to search and do a search pattern. But coming back up on the polar star from Antarctica, <laughs> we were in, get this, here we are on the polar star. We've done a five-month deep freeze or something, whatever, four or five months. We're in Papeete, Tahiti. Nice. Tahiti, mind you. That's a pretty good, hey, pretty good port call, I think. It is, and it might have been the glacier, so don't quote me on it. It was the glacier, sorry. So the same ship that we did that um, search and rescue pattern the, uh, on, the, on the front end of that deep freeze, on the back end, we're in Papahete, Tahiti, enjoying 
the South Pacific Island for some restroom relaxation. And um, I'm over on the island of Morea. I took a little ferry over with a friend. And um, we were coming back. And my friend, who was a bosun quartermaster, at the time we had quartermasters in the Coast Guard, he sees, we see the ship on the other side of the harbor. We're coming back from this little tiny island. We see the ship, and he says, ah, the Papa flag is flying. I think it was Papa. And uh, he said, that means you're being recalled. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Oh, no. <laughs> what? So um, in those days, everyone knew their signal flags. And so we get back, and sure enough, there was a storm a couple of days earlier, and um, now there's a boat missing. There's people missing, and we got a call from JRRC Honolulu, which is Joint Rescue Coordination Control Honolulu. I don't think they even exist anymore. And they had sent fixed wing like C-130s down to patrol, and we were recalled from Tahiti to get underway and do a search pattern for a missing boat that had gotten lost. Uh, in the storm, and we never found it. And I think later on they found uh, wreckage on the on the shore. But it was, um, you know, the interesting kind of things that shows that the Coast Guard, we are multi-mission. Our ships don't just do one thing. And so you can be on an icebreaker in, in, in Tahiti, and you can be called out on a search and rescue mission. Which is awesome, I think. I, that's, what, that's what makes me love the Coast Guard. You can be on an icebreaker. It's amazing. You know, headed, going to Antarctica, port calling in Tahiti, and get called out to a search and rescue case to go save lives. Awesome. Well, and another one is, and I know you might break this segment into two, this episode into two segments, but I'll just tell a short story. So on the Polar Star, and I do have my ships right this time, I was a senior boarding officer on the Polar Star in 1983. I was only 23 years old. <laughs> and... um so imagine that you're on the Polar Star, and I was sent down to a civilian law enforcement um, law enforcement training program in Modesto, California, for three weeks, and I learned basic defense tactics and law enforcement. And now I'm the senior boarding officer, and we go down to Antarctica again. And on the way, we're doing a um, we're doing a freedom of navigation exercise type of a thing. Um, on three different territories that are U.S. protectorates in the South Pacific. One of them was Palmyra Island, a little island called Palmyra. It's nothing more than an atoll. And so we were told to go down there and do a boarding on a sailboat that had been seen to be moored up in there. And all these islands had been like, you know, World War II bases. So they had a little pier or something there. So we had to send a boarding team in. I think they landed us by helicopter on this atoll. We had to make our way through the jungle to this pier and do a boarding on this French couple on a small sailboat. And I'm looking for drugs, thinking that they were running drugs across the Pacific. And uh, and then we went back, I think, I think a MSB, a motor safe boat, motor um, surfboat came in to get us. And we went back out to the ship by motor surfboat because it was an atoll. You couldn't get the ship anywhere near. But here I am uh, as a 23-year-old leading a law enforcement boarding on an atoll, Palmyra Island, in the middle of the South Pacific, on the way to Antarctica. Awesome! Again, love the <laughs> Coast Guard. Like those are the best stories. I think just where you're—it's just so random, but that's the mission. That's what we do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, awesome, man. <laughs> well, let's go. So you you served two tours, at, and you know what? I'm I'm really curious because you mentioned it a couple of times when you're serving as the uh, the military aide to the secretary. I mean, now you're you're like in the halls of power, right? All the time, you're in the circles of power. What um, 
what's that like for what did you do what was your job what did you you know how what did you pick up from that well so that's why i decided to write the book when i was a lieutenant in the halls of power to use the chief's uh, words there um i said to a girlfriend of mine one day who was on the secretary's advance team, she would advance all of his trips to make sure they were all planned out right. I said, Shane, the Coast Guard has been so good to me. Look at where we are. We're standing here in the secretary's office looking down on the whole, the way government works. You see the Coast Guard just a tiny part of that whole big picture. We have such a privilege and an opportunity. And look at all the Coast Guard's done for me. Six years at sea, going from the Arctic to Antarctic. I said to her, I'm going to write a book on all this someday. And she looked at me and said, Sandy, you've got to call that book Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what I called the book when I wrote it 30 years later. But the experience in the secretary's office was amazing. And what I did was I accompanied him to all of his meetings and I took notes. So this all started with um, him wanting to make sure that he didn't miss anything because he was going to so many meetings wanted to have a record of what had happened, what he had promised people he'd do, and he needed someone to get it done afterwards to follow up with all these people who weren't in the meetings. So I remember when we first... Um, so really, you're the most on- important person in the room. You're, like, the secretary, he just has to show presence, right? But you're the one that's, like, recording the stuff that somebody he's got to take action on. If you don't write it I down, had, it might not happen. Yeah, I had yeah. A, a, a key role beneath the scenes. And sometimes it was just... The secretary, if he was having a one-on-one, like with the CEO of an airline or the CEO of a railway or something, and they wanted a one-on-one, I'd be the only one in the room besides the secretary and the the chief executive officer of that company, Mm. that transportation entity. So it was pretty good access. Well, anyway, so the first um, weekly modal administrators meeting where I'm now a new person on staff, the modal administration, modal administrators meeting is uh, the same thing as the components meeting in DHS now. So all of the different components of DHS are like the Coast Guard, CBT, ICE. Well, in transportation, the modes were transportation, federal highways, the Coast Guard, Federal Aviation Administration. So all these senior executives are sitting around the table, and then there's Sandy and the secretary. And so he's introducing me to this group of the senior executives, including the Commandant of the Coast Guard, and he's trying to empower me. So he looks at me and says, and this is and this is um, Sandy Stowe's. I call her Lieutenant Follow-Up because when she speaks, she speaks for me, and you're going to listen. I expect you to listen. And he was kind of saying it in a light tone because Mr. Skinner is just that way. Um, and he, you know, it's just the way you said it, you know. And so I'm like, all of a sudden, my name is now Lieutenant Follow-Up. Not Sandy, <laughs> not Lieutenant Stowe's. And I'm sinking in my seat because the eyes of the Commandant of the Coast Guard turn steelily to stare right through me. And he's saying, I can see him communicating with his eyes across the table. We'll see about that. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so as it works out, so I sat in all these meetings and I did exactly what the Secretary would do. And all the other modal administrators mentored me. And they were all people like Admiral Goosey, who was in charge of the um, Federal Aviation Administration, all these assistant secretaries. They all mentored me and because we all needed to work together. And uh, the comment on the Coast Guard would have nothing to do with it. So instead of the Coast Guard thinking it was great that a young lieutenant had this kind of access with the secretary, 
they didn't. And so I was made to work through the commander that was in the office, commander at the time, Jeff Hathaway. He had to work through the commandant's executive assistant who worked to the commandant. And every other mode, I was working directly with a modal administrator. <laughs> wow, that's that's started, surpri- That's like a that's odd. Yeah, I wasn't just an aide; it was really an adjutant or uh, a special assistant. But nobody could accept that that a young lieutenant was doing that kind of role for the secretary. It just was beyond the Coast Guard's ability to reckon with, because it was so against the chain of command. So it was kind of hard in some ways because um, the commandant obviously therefore didn't like me and was um, threatened by some lieutenant in that position. So, of course, my career could have not gone very far after that when I came back to my home agency, right? I was fortunate that I went on the command to cap my bay and then people retired. <laughs> that commandant retired. It's only a four-year term, and, and I was able to make a career without having something come back on a perception that um, a senior leader had had about my role up there for the secretary, but I learned so much. I was there with Mr. Skinner when not, when um, the Exxon Valdez ran aground. Oh, and that's a heck of a time to be there, huh? To be in transportation department yeah, at the Coast Guard. Yeah, for sure. And uh, as, as DOT. And I remember um, the CEO of um, Exxon Valdez, Exxon, uh, Exxon, Mr. Lee Raymond, who was the CEO, coming down to, or coming in to meet with the secretary the day of or the day after. And uh, it was just myself, um, Mr. Raymond, and the secretary in the room, and they're talking about just a personal, private conversation. What do we do? There was no, the Stafford Act had just been put in place. There was no um, oil spill liability trust fund in those days. It was just, hey, this big ship is running around spilling all this oil. Nobody's responsible for cleaning it up by law. Um, and so Exxon said, hey, we're going to definitely do it because we want to, Keep we want to stay, stay in business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there was no emergency response put in place, really, because, like I said, the Stafford Act hadn't been tested yet. It had just been passed. And so the secretary took the responsibility to lead the charge for the, uh, for the president of the United States. And the Coast Guard played a key role in that. But I remember um, the secretary saying, oh, my gosh, how am I going to get supplies? How's the government going to get supplies up to the remote shores of Valdez, Alaska, when we have government contracting to deal with. We'll never get um, socks and clothing and protective gear. And Mr. Raymond looked at the secretary and said, I can have 15,000 pairs of socks in Valdez tomorrow. So he had the power of the private sector. I got to see all this. I mean, so you asked me what it was like. I got to see the Exxon Valdez operations with the chief executive of the organization of Exxon and the service secretary of transportation in a room together hashing out how they're going to deal with one of the biggest maritime disasters in the history of the United States. That's awesome. What a unique perspective. Like what just, just what you mentioned now is like so unique, I think. And just to, to kind of hear how it played out and um, what a cool opportunity. It was. Well, Admiral, um, when you you also commanded the Coast Guard Academy, correct? Uh, yes. <laughs> so, were you the Commandant of Cadets, or how how does that work? No, I was the Superintendent. Uh, when I was assigned there in 2011, I was actually the first woman to command any of the Armed Forces Service Academies. That would be the Navy in Annapolis, uh, West Point in West Point, or the Army in West Point. Uh, 
Air Force in Colorado Springs, Merchant Marine in Kings Point, and the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. So I came back in 2011, 30 years after I, 30 some odd years after I graduated as a cadet, having never thought I would ever rise to the rank of admiral. I thought I'd be lucky if I <laughs> graduated from the Coast Guard Academy, and here I was back uh, as superintendent all those years later. Wow. What, so what was the, how was that different from commanding Cape May? Like, what do you, uh, what would you take as the very unique lessons from that versus, uh, um, you know, leading the, uh, the charge to train the enlisted force? So leading the academy is a much different thing. We are a four-year institution of higher education. We do education with some training. Kate May is a eight-week program for, for for training to basically train our young enlisted force. It's a much uh, less complex, I didn't say complicated, I said complex mission because it's um, ruthlessly focused on the eight weeks of training. It's very complicated to get it right. There's a lot that you try to fit in those eight weeks and a lot of challenges in developing those young leaders of character in Cape May. But it's much more complex at the academy because you got the commandant of cadets, which is developing the leaders of character in the barracks, the military side, uh, on the waterfront with the sailing programs, uh, on the Coast Guard Bark Eagle. So you got that whole element. That's mostly your training element. Then you got your athletics, a whole varsity and intramural sports element that uh, is a part of a cadet's leader development and, and education and training. And then you've got the academic side, and that's where you've got all the classwork for four years of coming out of the Coast Guard Academy with a Bachelor of Science degree, and you're coming out with a commission as an officer in the United States Coast Guard. So you're coming out as a leader of character, having gone through all those aspects. So at the time I was in command, um, we also owned the Officer Candidate School and the Leadership Development Center, which during my watch we um, cut off and sent over to the Forces Command where they more properly belong because they're the training side of the house. So it would take me a long time to go through all the differences and complexities, but much different with the personnel. You have all different manner of people, different kind of statuses and categories of people from your your civilian faculty to your permanent commission teaching staff to your rotating military instructors, your officers and enlisted, your civilian workforce, wage grade workers working on the waterfront, or excuse me, in the um, uh, industrial side. So there's a lot of complexities at the academy that make it much more like a... Uh, um, like what you see at a regular college and a Coast Guard unit combined. Very cool. Yeah, the great great way to put it. Um, I know. So you mentioned too that you were uh, you were uh, I think a trustee with the Admiral Loy Institute. Yes, I am. Yep. I'm a trustee for that Loy Institute for Leadership that is responsible for leadership development of the cadets. Right. I know. Uh, I mean, Admiral Allen chaired it for uh, for quite a while, and now uh, you guys just transitioned to Admiral Ray, correct? Yeah, yeah, so Admiral um, Loy was the first chair, the first endowed chair, endowed by their, our major donor, Dr. Jim Tyler. Admiral Allen relieved him, and now Admiral Ray is the third 
person sitting in that chair, and there are three trustees, Admiral Lloyd, myself, and the, and the um, major donor, Dr. Tyler. Very cool. I, I can't wait to see what Admiral Ray brings to it, because Admiral Allen definitely left uh, definitely left a mark for sure, and um, it's going to be interesting. I think uh, I, I, I'm curious to know what. Uh, are you excited? You know, are you excited to work with a new uh, new chair? Well, yes, and I know Admiral <laughs> Ray well, and he is going to be a dynamo. When I was at his retirement ceremony a, a couple of months ago. The Secretary of Homeland Security, Secretary Mayorkas, stood up, and he didn't give a speech. He just stood up to make one remark about Admiral Ray. And there's a huge crowd here, mind you. There's hundreds of people <clears throat> up at Coast Guard headquarters under a tent for this ceremony. And Secretary Mayorkas said, when I told my staff, my Coast Guard staff up in DHS, that I was thinking of coming to Admiral Ray's retirement, he said, that, that staff said to him, Mr. Secretary, we revere Admiral Ray. And the way he said it put a hush over that crowd sitting there at Admiral Ray's retirement, which was also the change of watch with Admiral Fagan. It put a hush on that crowd because I think everybody who knew Charlie Ray could resonate with the fact that you revere the guy. He is a leader's leader, extraordinaire. So I am so excited he's going to be coming in to sit in the Tyler chair and help the academy move forward with its leader development program. You can tell them, Admiral, I, I totally thought that conversation was going to go differently. I thought they, they might be like, um, yes, yeah, Secretary, you, you could go, but it might get pretty rowdy because it is Admiral Ray. That's how I thought <laughs> it was going to go. <laughs> that's good that's part of his charm <laughs> right for sure um well admiral so uh your new book um breaking breaking ice and breaking glass right can you give me the title one more time yes it's breaking ice and breaking glass leading in uncharted waters perfect now available amazon.com and wherever books are sold yes and i of course and well i shouldn't say of course but i encourage uh anyone who's interested in the book to go to their bookstore Pick it up off off the shelf or order it and support your local bookstores. Yeah, I like that. Get a cup of coffee while you're there. Maybe uh, maybe a book signing. You know, you got you got any coming up? I do. I've got a book signing. I've done a, a number of them. I did a few in Grand Haven when I was out there for Coast Guard Day, and I've got one coming up at Titcombs Bookshop in uh, Sandwich, Massachusetts. I live in Falmouth, so I'll be doing that on September 15th at 7 o'clock at night. And I'll post that on my social media website as uh, time draws near. Hey, awesome, Admiral. Well, I so much appreciate your time today. I know the audience does. Uh, I'll ask you, you got any uh, parting shots, any alibis? You know, I just would leave everyone with my mantra. It's just something I, everyone always asks you that. What's your parting shot? So I came up with a mantra that was deep within me, and it's be brave. Believe and become the leader you're meant to be. And the be brave means have the moral courage to do the right thing always. Believe means believe in yourself and others. And the become is if you do that, if you be brave and believe, you are going to become the leader of character you're meant to be. Awesome. I think it's a solid way to go out, Admiral. We so much appreciate your time again. Uh, everyone, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters by Admiral Sandra Stotes, uh, retired after 40-year career in the Coast Guard. Uh, excellent stories, Admiral. Look forward to uh, to maybe talking with you again sometime in the future. Thank you so much, Phil. I, I was honored to be on. Awesome. Uh, never hesitate to reach out if you need anything, and uh, Semper Paratus.
Thank you. Semper Paratus. Before we end this, we want to give a plug for some people and organizations that we believe in. The Coast Guard Foundation supports the brave men and women of the Coast Guard when they need it the most, providing everything from financial aid to families in crisis to scholarships and playground equipment. As a nonprofit 501c3 charity, they count on our donations to deliver this support. Visit CoastGuardFoundation.org. That's CoastGuardFoundation.org to read about their programs and donate. What you can to support those who guard our nation's coast. One to check out is the Always Ready Collective, delivering art by and for daring fighters of the sea with their maritime-focused tattoo flash, pinups, and propaganda. Visit them on Facebook, Etsy, Instagram, and at alwaysreadycollective.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you like what this podcast is about and what we delivered, look us up at theyhadtogooout.com or your favorite podcast platform. And like, comment, subscribe, and share so we can keep the momentum up and do bigger things going forward. Look for a new episode every Sunday. Until then, fair winds and following seas.